When my babies, I see my babies, sorry. When my boys were babies, which is an increasingly long time ago, they were terribly fascinating to us. It's just something unique about them, I think. But despite their tremendous fascination, I, I still have very clear memories of being on the floor with them and watching all the wiggles and the giggles and everything else that was going on there and just longing for the day when they could talk. You know, it was great to watch them swat at dangly rings or maybe roll over every once in a while, but I really looked forward to that time when I would no longer have to guess what was on their mind or try to interpret the grunts and the cries, and and instead they could just tell me. Now, Fortunately for me, both boys started talking pretty young, and, and I was so excited about this that I would actually, like, I worked really hard at watching them closely, watching all the, the contexts and the looks and the points when they were doing it and listening carefully so that I could actually try and make it out, even if they couldn't fully articulate what they want. I just, I loved it. Not only was it kind of like a puzzle, but I felt like there was this great payoff at the end of, of conversation, of real communication. I loved it. Now, I will not pretend that I have been thrilled with every word that has come out of their mouth since they gained the ability to speak, but but nonetheless, I remain very happy when they will speak and share what's on their minds. I believe that God takes an even greater delight when we speak to him and share with him what's on our minds. We share our hopes and our fears, our joys and our concerns and our needs with him. Psalm 149.2 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Right? How often do we think about that? The Lord takes pleasure in us. In Matthew 7.11, Jesus said, If you then who are evil, he's just laying it out there. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, God delights in us, and, and far beyond even the greatest human father and the way that he delights in his child, God is just infinitely beyond that. And that's why Scripture assures us that, that God delights in hearing from us and talking with us, that he, he delights in our prayer. And this privilege and joy of prayer is central to the growth and nourishment of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is something we want to emphasize as we move into 2018 and and seek to grow in our discipleship and our followership and living and enjoying the life of Christ. Because the thing is, Christians don't just automatically know how to pray meaningfully and effectively to the Father, right? Just because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, just because we've been baptized, doesn't mean that we automatically know how to talk comfortably and fluidly with the creator of the universe. In many ways, we start out kind of like babies who, who don't have much ability to speak at all, other than some grunts and some groans and some strange repetitive noises that we don't get the hang of. And instead, we are called to learn and improve our prayers as we practice, as we draw nearer to the Lord, who we know hears us whenever and however we pray. And one of the challenges for us as Christians, as we seek to grow in the life of Christ, is that we often learn the wrong lessons about prayer from churches, 
from other Christians that we see, and it winds up getting us stuck in a rut of prayers that are habitually awkward and uncomfortable, artificial or rote, shallow or repetitive. The very kinds of prayers that Jesus warns us against praying, the ones that get filled with empty phrases that we don't know or understand ourselves. And that is not what God desires for our prayer life to be like. Because like the perfect loving father that he is, he longs for each of us to grow and mature in our ability to talk with him. And it's for this reason that Jesus gives us a model for prayer, which we know as the Lord's Prayer. And we started talking about it last week, that this is a prayer that is intended to model prayer that is conversational and honest that is efficient and straightforward, the, the, the direct words of a person who is speaking openly to his or her heavenly Father, confident that he already knows what we need before we ask. And last week we also talked about how Jesus' model for prayer teaches us to first lift up God's priorities. To put his heart, his will, his desire, his name, his reputation, his kingdom, and his will first and foremost. Front and center in our prayer life. But that does not negate the joy and the privilege that we have as children of God of being able to lay everything that's on our heart. Everything that's burdening us down, everything that's exciting us, laying that before the sovereign God of the universe. We should treasure and obey Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so to teach us this life of continual prayer, this life of honest and complete prayer. Jesus continues the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. We know it so very well. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These Requests are a fundamental acknowledgement of what is explained to us in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Lord's Prayer reflects our total reliance, our total dependence on God for physical and spiritual provision Every single day of our life. Because every good gift is from God, and ultimately we can do nothing on our own. Nothing good, anyway. And so Jesus says to get on our knees and ask for our needs. These are humble requests. We look at these requests. These are humble requests to our Father that say, would you please clean up our messes from yesterday and provide what we need to get through another day of glorifying God in a messy, fallen world. And so Jesus begins by teaching us to pray for our physical needs today. In verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now bread here represents all of our physical needs, as it often does in Scripture. 
And the thing about bread is that while it is certainly a necessity, and I certainly enjoy eating it, it's not particularly luxurious, right? This request is about our fundamental needs. It is not about our wild desires. It is not about any sort of luxuries. The request here is give us this day what we absolutely need, and I trust that you know what I need. All right, this is the confidence that's built in here from verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So even as you're asking for your daily bread, you can do it with the confidence he knows what you need. Verse 11 literally reads in the original language, give us today our bread for the coming day. And I find this is very helpful in understanding what do we mean when we say, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today our bread for the coming day. This is a request that is intensely focused on the needs of the particular day that lies before us. It recognizes that God's provision is day to day and that we need it before we go about the business of our day. That much like manna in the wilderness in Old Testament times, God provides the strength and the support that we need on a particular day. But we can't stockpile it. You can't pile it up. Praying a whole lot on Sunday morning when you're feeling particularly churchy is not going to get you through the challenges of Monday through Saturday. But God's provision will sustain us each and every day as we come to him. Now, the world might view this as a precarious approach to life, you know, just going day by day. That's not how we plan things and live things in 21st century America. I mean, we love going to Costco and piling up bread, get a month's worth and stuff it in our extra freezer. Double if there's snow in the forecast. What we need to recognize is that rightly understood, learning to rely on God's daily provision for our physical needs is actually a blessing in itself. As we become increasingly faithful in talking to God each and every day and asking for his blessing and provision for that day and recognizing that provision when it actually comes through, we learn to rely more and more on God each and every day, each and every hour, and we gradually absorb this truth that all our provision is ultimately coming from God anyway. One of the slow-to-be-recognized, I think, tragedies of the time in which we live is that we have a life and uh, a country, a period of time of unparalleled abundance. Never has a people had more than we have today in 21st century America. And yet despite that, or I think because of that, we live in a terribly anxious age. Anxiety disorders affect 18% of all adults in the United States and 25% of children ages 13 to 18. We have a plague, a pandemic of anxiety in America. And yet scripture speaks into this and says that one of the blessings of a healthy relationship with God, one that is characterized by honest and conversational daily prayer, is that it melts away our anxieties. 
We're familiar with Philippians 4.6. I've already quoted it once today. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But we need to rejoice also in the very next verse as Paul continues the thought. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, as we learn to walk daily by God's provision, rather than just fretting about how we're going to provide for ourselves a week from now or a a month from now or how are we going to provide for ourselves five years from now or how will we ever be able to retire or what happens if we outlive our savings and all these things that we are taught to worry about in our culture, God promises that our anxiety will melt away and be replaced by his peace when we are faithful in prayer. Daily prayer for God's provision reshapes our mind to let go of our anxiety. And this is why shortly after teaching us to pray, Jesus revisits this point, revisits God's provision for our physical needs. He encourages us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 through 33. And I've always loved this passage. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It is sufficient, it is appropriate, it is transformational for us to learn to faithfully pray each day for our physical needs for that specific day. And then Jesus turns to our spiritual needs, arguably even greater. He teaches us to pray for forgiveness today. In verse 12, he teaches, and forgive us our debts. And this language of debt was often used in the first century uh, in in the Jewish world to describe sin. Jesus' listeners understood that betraying God's standard through sin was like piling up a debt that had to be paid off before you could stand before a holy and righteous God. And so this prayer request is recognizing that we often mess up. We often mess up in our thoughts and in our words and in the the actions we take or, or in the actions we fail to take or the words we fail to say. And we want to be clear here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this one, this verse, this request, it's optional. Only do that if you actually did mess up. He puts it in there because he assumes, he knows that we always have something we need forgiven. If you don't agree with that, I would encourage you to look more deeply into your life. Because 1 John 1.8 assures us that if we feel like we don't have things that need to be forgiven, we are lying to ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
But the great assurance that we have as we pray this prayer, as we lift up this request, is that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, God will forgive us with 100% certainty. Continuing on in 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, we... We all sin. We have all sinned, and we will continue to sin, even as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, our sins should decrease over time if we are truly following Jesus Christ, if we are truly cultivating a relationship with God, truly seeking to live after the pattern of our Lord. But we're still going to mess up. That's just an ongoing reality that we all sin and fall short of the glory of the most perfect and holy God of the universe who cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so because God is, is perfectly righteous and just, he cannot permit God to uh, sin rather to go unpunished. Every sin is a rebellion against his good plan for our lives and his authority over us. To go back to the language of debt, every sin is like piling on a little extra student debt, a little, little more mortgage, a little more credit card debt. And it's got to be paid off. And Scripture is clear that the penalty for sin, the way it is paid for, is death. Eternal separation from the God who loves us, who made us in his image. But because of his tremendous love and mercy, God provided a way for our sins to be forgiven, our, our debt to be canceled, without us paying that penalty, without us having to pay off that debt. And he made this provision through his eternal and holy son, Jesus Christ, who stepped into our world, who took on a human nature and a, and a human body in order to live the perfect sin-free life that we fail to live every single day. And Jesus did this not just to set some moral example, but to be the innocent sacrifice that was necessary to pay off that debt, to clear the books, to pay the penalty for the horror of our personal sin. Jesus did it so that, that he could voluntarily go to his death on a brutal Roman cross, be humiliated and tortured while carrying the shame and the guilt and the debt that we should carry, carrying the anger of God for your sin and mine. And then the most remarkable thing happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Just as he promised, he rose from the dead, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice, that the payment was sufficient, that the books are cleared for every single person who trusts in him as Lord and Savior, that we will not pay the penalty of death, that we will receive the forgiveness of sins and the eternal life in the presence of God through God's grace. He did this, and as he rose, he proved that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what we need to realize is that this grace, this salvation, doesn't just cover up our sins up to the moment we first believe in Jesus, but rather that the incredible grace of God wipes away our future charges on the credit card, our future sin. 
No matter what messes we get ourselves into, no matter how far we think we run away or fall away from God, 1 John 1, 9 comforts us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all, all unrighteousness. It's in this confidence that we can ask God each and every day, each and every hour, each and every minute as we need it, forgive us our debts and know he will. But Jesus introduces a caveat on this request, doesn't he? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this request should scare us if we like to carry grudges or nurse old wounds because we are asking God to forgive us the same way that we have forgiven those who have wronged us. Do we really want him to forgive us that way? What Jesus is saying is that we need to take the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of our sins that we receive through the undeserved love and grace of God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we need to take that very same gospel we have received and apply it to every single human relationship we have. Jesus is telling us that for every self-righteous grudge and hurt that we are carrying, we need to apply the grace that we have received, we need to forgive those people, even or especially if they don't deserve it. That's what it means to ask for forgiveness as we have forgiven others. And I know that there are many Christians, perhaps including some here in this room, who, who remain focused on how others have offended them or hurt them. I mean, let's be honest, we do it all the time in churches, right? We love to get offended and hurt by one another because we feel like it shouldn't happen in this place, and yet it does because we are humans. And the question that Jesus is raising here and elsewhere in the Scriptures that unfortunately we need to wrestle with and takes very seriously is that if we are still, still, still focused on how others have offended us, have we fully come to grips with the depths of the offenses that we have committed against God. We need to truly realize how deeply offensive our rebellion against God is and how incredibly undeserved his forgiveness of our sin is. And then once we have done that, how bad is that thing that person did to us in comparison? We need to confess our lack of forgiveness and our bitterness towards others and ask God to forgive us once again and to help us to forgive. Jesus is forthright on this subject. If we can't forgive others, no matter how undeserving, we need to, we need to wrestle with the question of whether we have really, truly accepted the forgiveness of God for our mistakes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes this point immediately after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right, if there is no forgiveness in our heart, have we actually asked God genuinely for forgiveness from Him that we don't deserve? This is what we must wrestle with. We need to be seeking God's forgiveness every single day, and we need to be offering that forgiveness towards everyone in our life 
every single day and do so with the confidence that God forgives us every single day that we ask. But having prayed for and received forgiveness for the previous day's mistakes, Jesus concludes his model prayer by teaching us to pray for spiritual protection today so that we don't make new mistakes that we're going to have to come and ask for forgiveness for tomorrow. We probably will, but we should still be asking for protection so that we don't. And the first half of this request, and lead us not into temptation, I think it merits a little clarification. It merits a little clarification because the Greek word that is translated here as temptation is, is the same word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe testing or trials. Right? I think we can be confused about this because James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 makes it clear. God never tempts us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God will never tempt us. So if we think of this literally as as a request, God, please don't tempt me, we are missing the point of this request. God will never tempt us. But God will let us go through trials that test our faith. And within those trials, we may be tempted towards sin, whether it is to escape from the trial or to cope with it. And so this request within the Lord's Prayer should be understood as a request for God to not put us through a testing that would result in our being tempted to sin. Now, Scripture tells us trials can work for our greater good, that when we're in the midst of them, we should rejoice because of what it does for our character and refining who we are, the greater good it can accomplish. But here Jesus is making it clear, it's not wrong to pray for God to protect you from having to go through trials. Recall again from verse 8, God knows what we need, and so there are going to be times when God knows that we need to go through a trial to accomplish a greater good for his good plan. But the point I think we see here is that we shouldn't seek these out unnecessarily, that we should regularly ask for God's mercy in protecting us from entering into seasons of testing. (coughs) However, let's be honest. Everyone will go through seasons of testing. We will go through trials, and anyone who says otherwise is lying to you. And so when that happens, Jesus concludes his prayer by teaching us to ask God to protect us spiritually in the midst of those trials and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is the traditional translation that we are very, very familiar with, but if you start looking around at many of the good modern translations, you will see that many of them translate this last request as to deliver us from the evil one, from Satan. This is a translation I favor as well. Deliver us from the evil one. Here, Jesus acknowledges the reality of an adversary, the reality of Satan, the reality of ongoing daily spiritual warfare in our lives. 
Jesus is teaching us that we have a very real enemy who is deeply invested in our failure. And he teaches us that we have a more powerful God who can rescue us from that enemy. And so we are to pray daily for protection from the traps and the lies of the adversary, that God would rescue us from giving in to temptation in the midst of trials, rescue us from committing new sins for which we would need to seek forgiveness the next time we approach him. So if you aren't praying for your spiritual protection, for that of your family members, that of your friends, I would urge you to follow Jesus' example in this prayer. And I would urge you to pray this petition for us as a church. Because the adversary doesn't mind a harmless, ineffective, self-absorbed church, but he despises one that takes seriously the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. He despises one that is reaching out and ministering to the lost and the hurting. And so if we are faithful in becoming a lighthouse for Jesus Christ in this community and making disciples who make disciples, then our common enemy will seek to attack and derail this transformation. And our primary defense is the prayer of the faithful. And our primary weapon is the word of God. And so please be in prayer every day for this church and our mission and our transformation into the church that God has called us to be. And every day be in God's word. As we look at these requests together, as we take them together, what we see is that that while we know them so well, when we think about them more deeply, we realize they are expressing a total reliance on God for physical and moral and spiritual needs. And then when we lift up requests like these, and we are, we are doing it thoughtfully and carefully and intentionally, then we are confessing we can't do it all on our own. We're admitting that we fail and we will fall. And we're acknowledging that we can't save ourselves and we can't prevent ourselves from messing up, that, that we can't even provide for ourselves in an uncertain world without the grace and provision of God. And spiritually, this is exactly where God is calling us to be, drawing our strength from him and him alone amidst our weakness. This morning, I was following along in the daily reading plan, and I came to the very reason we can lift up these prayers with confidence and know God will take care of us. It was in Psalm 46. I won't read it all to you, but I'll read the first three verses as we close. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is our God who gives us everything we need every day that we ask. Let's go before him in prayer. Oh, gracious and loving Father, what a joy and a delight that you hear us, that you like to hear us as we lift up our concerns and our complaints and our frustrations and our disappointments and our failures. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to grow ever closer to you in prayer. Lord, we do lift up our requests for daily provision, Lord. We ask that you would provide us our daily bread. 
for you are the source of every good gift, every good thing. There is nothing we can do. We think we control it. We think we got it. But how swiftly it all blows away with a turn of weather or a, a bad diagnosis or an unfortunate thing at work. And we realize we never had it. That you are our daily provision. Lord, forgive us our sins. Help us to be honest and lay them before you. That we are creatures of dust, that we fall short of your glory just about every day. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Help us to rejoice in our confidence that you do forgive us our sins through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to forgive those with whom we have trouble, those who have sinned against us, those who have offended us, those who have hurt us, Lord. Help us to see that it is nothing compared to the disobedience and rebellion that we lift up to you quite often. Lord, we operate in a difficult and a dangerous world. And so, Lord, we ask for your protection from ever entering into trials, but we know that trials will come. And so when they do, Lord, we pray that you would protect us Rescue is not so much from the trial, but from the, the temptation to fall into sin, to fall away from you, Lord, and that instead each trial would be an opportunity to grow closer to you and that we would take that opportunity, becoming more and more like your precious and holy Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.